Hey, now say now you're tuned into the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host Devon Pouncy. I am here in the beautiful city of Portland, Oregon, and to all of you, this is a very special occasion, as this podcast has been in effect since. 2017 it is now 2020 going into 2021 and we have never done a best of episode to recap the previous calendar year before going into a new calendar year and I think it's very important to do a recap especially for this year for this here podcast for me to be able to reflect as a podcast host on all the things that we've covered here on this podcast for you as listeners subscribe Subscribers and consumers to reflect on all the the episodes that you've consumed and listened to, to all the knowledge that was given out here on this podcast, to all the fun times, all the sad and depressing times, the motivating times, and just all the diverse episodes that you were able to consume as a listener this year in 2020, because I think we had so many great moments. So today, You'll get some highlights of some of the best moments that I deemed that we had here on this podcast. Obviously, you know, each of you have had moments in particular that you may want to reflect on and think about as you listen to and through this episode. But I certainly had some of my favorites this year. And it's interesting because when I was doing radio in 2017, I had talked to some radio execs throughout the nation, really. And one thing that they mentioned was... It takes about 18 months to be able to know and understand exactly what that radio show is. Maybe not exactly, but you have a good grasp on what that radio show is and what it can grow to be. And that always stuck with me as I did radio for about six months. And I definitely felt that if I had 18 months to do a radio show, my goodness, it could have been out the park. But I always kind of had that thought in the back of my mind. And then... I did my own basic math in my head to correlate that to how long it would take for a podcast to have an identity and know what it is to be able to continue to grow and blossom, but also have a foundation to stand upon as you continue to grow and blossom and release episodes of your podcast. So this is about a weekly podcast. So you take five days a week, I was doing a radio show and they said that it would take a year and a half for us to know what that radio show would be like. So you kind of chop that down a little bit and turn that into weekly. It takes about three years to know what a podcast is, to know the podcast identity, especially if you're somebody who's in it for the long haul and playing the long game, which obviously I am. But I really, truly felt that in this year of 2020, this podcast grew in identity and figured out what it was. We figured out what this podcast was together. And as I mentioned, doesn't mean that we don't have massive amounts of rooms of room to grow, but it definitely felt like we had some cohesiveness and that we were definitely in sync with what it was that we published and put out together as a podcast community. So for starters, This year was very tough. It was one that many of us struggled to grapple with. And at the beginning of the year, unfortunately, we had a tragedy that, I mean, I definitely couldn't have expected this in 2020. 
And that tragedy was the unfortunate passing of Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna Bryant, as well as seven others, in a helicopter accident in Southern California. Now, I'm somebody that grew up a Kobe lover. I'm a huge Kobe Bryant fan. I think he's the greatest player to ever play. There may be some bias in that. Oh, well, I don't care. He was good enough for me for me to be able to make that statement and not sound like an absolute fool. But also... Kobe Bryant's legacy was very complex. There were many things that Kobe Bryant dealt with throughout his career, and many of you have followed the career of Kobe Bryant to know the same. And in his passing, I think people really struggled when it came to grappling with the legacy that Kobe Bryant left behind. When you see the recap of his life, the goods, the good and the bad, the highs and the lows and everything in between, Many people really struggled on how to speak about Kobe Bryant's legacy or how to even just coherently understand Kobe Bryant's legacy. And at the time, obviously, I read articles all up and down publications throughout the country, throughout the world, really. And there was one article that really stood out to me. And the article was called A Legacy of Incoherence, written by Dr. Amira Rose Davis, and that she published in the New Republic. And Amira really gave a great, informed, complex, caring, thoughtful analysis of many of the conversations that were tough for us to grapple with out as a community, especially during the recent passing of Kobe Bryant. And so I want to start off with a clip of that unfortunate time, but it's also a time where I thought Dr. Amira Rose Davis really, really informed us in a way that we needed to be informed as humans, as fans, as people, and as mourners of Kobe Bryant in his passing. So check out this first clip, Dr. Amira Rose Davis, on her article, A Legacy of Incoherence, published in the New Republic. Um, Speak to somebody like myself that has had many thoughts and sentiments around this i grew up in california mm-hmm. diehard kobe fan my entire life i've argued from the beginning until now that he is the greatest basketball player <laughs> of all time and i will continue to argue that probably until it's my time to go <laughs> but when talking about rape in particular and talking about um sort of patterns that we see in rape culture one thing that I held on to for a very long time is, and I'm more so speaking to after the case was dismissed, mm-hmm. after it was settled, I should say, um, is that we never saw or we never heard of an accusation in regards to Kobe Bryant again. And very often you hear in regards to rape culture that many rapists and many people who are accused of rape tend to be repeat offenders. They tend to do it again. There's sort of this power struggle that comes with it, especially when you're able to get away with it. I'm not speaking to whether Kobe did it or not, but I'm just speaking from more of a general standpoint here. But you often hear that they do it again and again and again, or you often hear multiple women coming out against this man after the first woman finally had the courage to be able to speak up. Can you speak to what you would say to somebody with that mentality? Or you could speak it straight to me because I've had that mentality well, I mean, for quite I think some that time. The numbers in Jermaine, I think that the issue at hand is that the there's possibilities of thinking through 
um, this event as a longer, larger conversation. So when when Kobe issued his apology, yeah, one of the things that he said in this was, I have come to now understand through testimony, through evidence, that she did not understand this to be a consensual act. What if instead of that apology being the end of the story, it became a conversation on what consent looks like? It became a conversation about like how can we have a situation in which one person thinks there's consent and one person thinks there's not. Right. And that is a much more fruitful conversation than, you know, just being like, all right, he apologized, we're moving on, bet. Right? And so I think on one hand, certainly in the Me Too movement, where we're talking about things that have been suppressed for decades and decades, you definitely see patterns. But that's not always the case. There's a lot of people who are, you know, wonderful husbands and brothers and fathers and colleagues and friends who have committed harm in one way or another. And I think a lot of times the harm that we're talking about is not simply the five-minute interaction that they had in Colorado, but the, the smear campaign that existed after it. And I think that we can look at that apology as an instructive moment to say, if he's saying, I've come to understand that this is what consent is and that was she did not give consent, then... What if he led a larger conversation on that? And I think a lot about restorative justice. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. not here to be like, that's that's it, throw, lock them up and throw away the key. I don't think that's the answer. I think right. if you believe in restorative justice and you don't like the carceral state, it requires you, it compels you to think through the ways that we can have community responses to moments of harm, whatever that harm looks like. And I think this was a moment in which there was all these windows of opportunity to collectively think about what a a kind of path or what accounting for, you know, was needed. One of the tricky things is is up until two years ago, at least, um, he was still enforcing the NDA of the case. Right. Right. And that, I mean, we just, we've seen this with Mike Bloomberg right now, that the, you know, NDAs are one-sided agreements. And to be that far removed and still be enforcing an NDA, part of restorative justice is that you center the person who was harmed and you let them take the lead. That's not something we could have done in this case because the NDA was still being reformed. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because my next question was going to be, who is responsible for taking the lead? And I guess we could just center it around this particular case because this is what we're talking about. But we talk about restorative justice. Who is responsible in taking that lead? Who is responsible in knowing that that lead should be taken? Kind of speak more so to that. Yeah. And so like conventionally, when you talk about restorative justice, um, the idea is that you if it's a random case, right, is that um, the the person that was harmed sits with the person who did the harm and whoever else was impacted yeah right their family their community whatever right and in those conversations you develop pathways to 
to forgiveness and rehabilitation and mm. and atonement, right? Yeah. And so what what that looks like, the, the point is there's not a one size fits all model. What that looks like for various things can be different. Yeah. And in this case, I think one of the things that's tricky is that because this became a public reckoning, become because this became a public moment, because this became like, you know, the public caught the kind of shrapnel from that was flying from this case, that I think one of the things that um, started to fester was that there was no kind of public moment to take even practices of restorative justice to have conversations and what that would look like in like our sports media right is diverse voices talking about this case 2003 we did not have the media skate that we have yeah, now. Yeah, like we did not sure. have that and so one of the things that happened was that the media was very complicit in steamrolling the woman involved, but also in compelling everybody to move on, even when people watching this were not necessarily there because they there was literally no space or avenue for any other type of the conversation. Yeah. Um, and I think that... That, that's some of the kind of missed opportunity that I'm speaking about. And I think there's a great piece, um, now I'm blanking on who wrote it, that you can clearly see that Kobe grew as a person, as many of us do. Absolutely. You can clearly see the love he had for his four girls, for Vanessa. You can see the investment he was making in women's sports. You can see that you know unfortunate end point. Yeah. But what we didn't have in between was any kind of like we didn't see the process. Yeah. And I think that's I think that for a lot of people, like I didn't necessarily need that. I'm talking about societal conversations. Right. But I think for a lot of people that was the whiplash is that um that's what produced the incoherence is that there was no window into the process. There was no kind of moment of saying, oh, this is how I've come to embrace women's sports. Now, many of you recall the story of Bubba Wallace and the noose being found in the garage of his race car this year, and it sparked so many conversations during a time when the racial justice climate was already heightened in a way that I've never seen before in my lifetime. But I wanted to play this clip of me speaking on the Bubba Wallace situation, not because I care about NASCAR, because I absolutely can't stand NASCAR. I'm not a fan of it. I don't watch it. But what I do know where I felt like this episode may have been, or not even this episode, but this incident may have been one of the more relatable ones to me is because Bubba Wallace had to deal with some harsh criticism because he played in a league that did not reflect him when it came to who he was as an African-American man. I myself work in a profession that doesn't necessarily reflect me when it comes to who I am as an African-American man. And with that being said, I thought Bubba Wallace's profession prepared him for that moment and the moment that he dealt with here in the year of 2020. And with the year that I've had in 2020, having to cover many of these racial justice issues and things of that sort, I think my profession prepared me for much of the same and how to be able to handle and navigate this year based on the incidents that we saw happen throughout the world. So sit back and check this out, everybody, as I talk about how I can relate to Bubba Wallace and how his profession prepared him for this here very moment. 
um, why I can relate to Bubba Wallace in a lot of ways. And I talk about this on the podcast here a lot, but like I said, as somebody that didn't know Bubba Wallace, had no idea who the guy was, and just seeing what he's going through and how he's persevering through it in a lot of ways, because he's been outspoken about, you know, he he's strong and he's able to handle all the flack and the pushback that he's getting right now. I think what I love about Bubba Wallace being in this particular moment is that his profession prepared him to be able to withstand it now Touch i don't know racism probably plant plant yeah. i mean yeah. being a nascar yeah. driver yeah seeing this confederate flag at every single race dealing with rhetoric that may not necessarily relate to his background his being race point zero where he zero comes one from percent. exactly so with that being said I really can relate to that because, like I said, I don't know Bubba Wallace. Haven't really looked into his past beyond really these past two weeks and more so his his NASCAR career. I don't know the trauma he endorsed when it came or he, he, he dealt with when it came to racism in his childhood. Right. But when it comes to rhetoric that doesn't necessarily favor blackness as a black person within your profession and having persevered through that. And now it's just all kind of coming to a tipping point because of the times we're in socially, especially in particular after the murder of George Floyd, seeing Bubba Wallace navigate through all of this as smoothly as he has up to this point shows me that the profession, whether it knew it or not, already prepared Bubba Wallace for this because of what he's had to endure and how he's endured it to even be able to be in this position to get to this point. This is where I said I can relate. When I first got into working in media, I had folks in the building that I, I won't ever say that I dealt with a racist encounter personally, but I had folks in the building who, who are big time name folks that spewed a rhetoric that kind of controlled a lot of that particular company because that particular person was a person who had a lot of power within the company. Um, like I said, he and I, I'm not going to say his name, but he and I had an awkward relationship. It was a good relationship, but it was awkward nonetheless because we never agreed on shit. But Every morning, every day, he and I would debate before we went on to both of our shows and we, we ended oddly smiling at each other. We even had a moment in the studio where I was going to the bathroom and he was coming from the bathroom and we both stopped in the middle of the hallway. He got down to take a knee because it's 2017 when the Colin Kaepernick shit was really, really hot. And I got down and I took a knee with this guy in the hallway of the studio and we're both taking the knee you know in regards to Colin Kaepernick and I know because I debated with the guy every single morning he was very critical of Colin Kaepernick he and he shit. knew and he knew I was a huge supporter of Colin Kaepernick yeah. so he was so, trying to be funny so he, he was definitely trying to be funny but but what what was the interesting dynamic of it is I still have a lot of allies from that particular radio station. I was just on the station uh, two weeks ago. I was on Kanzano's show, who was one of my biggest allies from that station because he was the one that, that really molded me. I was his intern, and he was a big player and why I even got the radio show in the first place and still a friend of mine in life right now. I know his family. He knows me. You know my family. Like It's good. That's my guy. But... Because this other guy had so much power in the building, 
and I had to deal with this guy and the power that he had, but I never stood down to him. In a lot of ways, he actually respected me and he garnered a respect for me because most people in that building really just wouldn't have said shit. Talk to him. When they, you know what I mean? They either wouldn't talk to him, they wouldn't say shit because they yeah. knew the position that he held the within the company. The fact that y'all still had an encounter let the you know that, that it was something there. The fact that we had an encounter, it was something there. Despite That's why I said his, it was yeah. it was an awkwardly it was an awkward relationship because we never agreed, but, yeah, it, but worked. it worked. And I'll never forget. I'll never forget when I got laid off from the company and I ended up going back to go get my paycheck, my severance paycheck, because the party over. was over. I ran into him in the elevator and he was like, man, I really didn't know that any of this happened to you. I really didn't know this, that and the third and, and anything that you need going forward. I'm here for you. I got you. I haven't spoken a word to this guy since then. Now, some of you also may know the Dina Costa story. His name I will say when we both worked at 750 the game at the same time and he spewed a lot of this racist rhetoric and he was somebody who opposed Colin Kaepernick and ultimately talked shit about protesters here in the city of Portland, got canceled and was fired within no time. But he and I both started our different radio shows on the same station but I was in the morning from 9 to noon. He was drive time 3 to 6 on the same day. We came in at the same time and he was put on a pedestal that I certainly wasn't for one because yeah it was my first time having a show but for two the the program director of the station of the first guy that I mentioned who didn't who I won't name who will remain nameless was also the program director for the sports show so because the guy who I'm still gonna remain nameless was so successful on that station when he when it was time for him to bring in these two no two new shows on the sports station station Gonzano was the big vouch for me as I already mentioned my program director was the one who vouched for this other guy Dino Costa who spewed a lot of bullshit rhetoric so basically what I'm saying there was this culture in that building where I have got Guys who don't really fuck with me and people like me in regards to their stance in, in, in politics in regards but to, you knew how to move their beliefs you but I knew it. how to move through it and I felt like I was built for it and in a lot of ways that's been my biggest inspiration in getting to the point that I am now and that's mm -hmm. been one of my biggest inspirations and, and stand steadfast in my profession and like I said now I'm making all of these appearances I got people that really didn't know how invested in the politics that I've been over the last few years because everybody knows me as the sports dude. I played ball, ended up having a sports radio show, host a sports podcast, still doing sports coverage with Portland State, Pacific University, yada, yada, yada. But in this particular moment where everything is coming to a tipping point, I really must say that me having to deal with what I dealt with in radio really prepared me and inspired me over the last few years to take a deep dive into the work that I've been doing. And now that we're at a time socially where I have to step up and speak on behalf of my people and people that support me. And I'm on these bigger platforms that most of y'all have never seen me on before. A lot of that 
has to be credited to the preparation that my profession gave to me earlier on in my career dealing with some of the bullshit rhetoric that we hear and that's been put out there that we're all talking about and discussing today and a lot of people are uncomfortable when it comes to discussing it and here I am ready to step right in because I've dealt with this shit already Bubba Wallace I feel like has dealt with this shit already throughout his career so it's easier for him I'm not going to say it's easy but it's easy easier for him than it would be for most to actually step up in this particular moment, grab hold of it and capitalize the way that he's done so and really be strong during all of this the way that he's done so because his profession prepared it for prepared him for it. That's good good comparison. Oh man, this next clip and this next guest was somebody that I was so grateful to have on this podcast because I tell you, when it comes to the mission of this podcast and what this podcast is all about and the focus that we put in on the intersection of sports and politics and culture, too, um, this guest right here was a huge influence when it came to me even having an interest when it came to that intersection. We had Shireen Ahmed of Toronto, Canada, join us. And she just got to really sit back and talk to us about some of the female activism that took place in the year of 2020. I think it's something that we need to really shed light on and continue to shed light on as women lead the charge in a lot of ways when it comes to activism within sport. And I am so grateful and we were so fortunate to be able to have Shireen Ahmed join us and just kind of break down, discuss and highlight some of that female activism that took place in the year 2020. Sit back and enjoy, folks. I want to first highlight some female athlete activism, or I want you to highlight that because um, there's definitely been a lot of that going on during these times. And um, I want our listeners to hear from your perspective, what is some of the female athlete activism that has stood out to you during this moment in time? Um, that's such an insightful question. And thank you so much for starting there. And this is one of the things I hope people have seen in aspiring young sports journalists turn to you. Like the first thing you look at, you look at women athletes and where they are. We know that black women in particular have been in the forefront of so much resistance, um, whether it was WNBA players long ago taking a knee, wearing I can't breathe shirts. This is something that we can't lose sight of. And I feel very often the history of women, and I learned so much from Dr. Amira Davis, or you know, my co-host on the, on the show, um, talks about this athlete activism is not new and this idea that you know it came first with Colin Kaepernick you know it came to the forefront with Colin Kaepernick because of the platforms of the NFL and such but we've seen athlete activism happen for a really long time and you know as Wyoming Atias or whether it was Althea Gibson in their own way or Serena Williams later talking about this stuff we've seen um you know, Billie Jean King is, you know, is, is a huge figure in this and what athlete activism is. And it could mean pay equity. It could mean, you know, combating anti-blackness, combating homophobia, all these things. So I mean, very specifically now, I mean, I think a lot about Simone Biles. I think a lot about, you know, Rachel Delhollander, who was one of the first survivors to talk about um, Dr. Larry Nasser, former rather Larry Nasser, the man associated who committed all these crimes but in this space when we're talking so much about race i think very much about maya moore yeah who has been instrumental in unprecedented ways of 
just working with black prisoners who have been victims of this industrial complex of prison and what she has done to help overturn, you know, a verdict and release a man who we know is innocent, but because of the way the system, it's not a justice system, it's a legal system, but to take that on and commit and the work, the emotional, mental, psychological, physical labor it takes for this is incredible. I mean, I recently interviewed Renee Montgomery and who was taking a year off. So was Natasha Cloud of the WNBA. I mean, I don't know if it's something that's special about women basketball players. Yeah, I don't know. And there's something there in that water. Something in the water. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> they are, you know, and are formidable in the way that they stand to bring their truth to power. And I've watched in awe, and we've seen this since 2016, since before. I, I just, I find it beautiful. I find it um, really important. There was Alison Desir, who is a runner, a black runner, who runs a black women's running group um, in New York. We had her on the show after the murder of Emmett Aubrey mm-hmm. and, you know, what she was talking about. So there's some that we might not amplify, but the other thing I want to remind all your listeners too, is that there are heroes in every community. Yeah. We may not hear about them on the on the news and whatnot. You know, Megan Rapino is somebody that's been advocating for a long time about what allyship looks like and understanding that struggles are connected, which is very important. If Absolutely. you think this doesn't, if you don't think this matters to you, then you have a problem. I mean, she was the first white athlete to kneel in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick, but that gets erased, right? Because like we want to look at everyone else. No, it was Megan Rapino, who's a yeah. queer white woman, and. Um, you know, just thinking about the stuff that she's definitely someone on my mind who uses her platform. She accepted and, you know, awards and she'll talk about how white people got to pull up. And, you know, there's so many ways in which we could do that. The you know, NWSL is on right now. The Challenge Cup yeah. is on in Utah and how we see, you know, we'll see Crystal Dunn leading, how she'll be talking. Yeah. And, you know, Lynn Williams is formidable. Like just, I think that there's so many that that happened in a way so but i just want to also recognize people in smaller communities yeah who are doing the work there's women all over the place there's black women indigenous women racialized women who are doing this work but on a higher platform you know first place i stopped is a wnb i got me my (laughs) new york liberty shirt you know i'm i'm i can't lie that's your team kia nurse is canadian i've interviewed her a couple times i love her to pieces i'm a big yukon fan you know that the huskies you are i guess so i love that team i also appreciate that team um so a bit of me that's that's chicago a bit of me that chicago i'm a big gabby williams fan who i also love i think she and Azari Stevens have been on the show and um, I love their Instagram. They're dancing and doing all these funny TikTok videos and they bring light. I mean, this is the other thing that I appreciate. These are women that do the work. They talk the talk and then they bring joy into spaces. And I cannot thank them enough for that. Now, this next episode is one that I hold very near and dear to me. And it was interesting at the time when we recorded it, because initially when I scheduled this episode, I scheduled it with Dr. Jules Boykoff to talk about his book that was published this summer called No Olympians. Now, 
when we scheduled this, we had no idea that the Portland protests were going to be as alarming as they were, were going to be as impactful as they were, were going to get as much news coverage as they did. And somebody who was out there on the front lines almost nightly was Dr. Jules Boykoff, who's a mentor of mine. He's a professor at Pacific University. He's a professor of politics. He's one of the greatest voices when it comes to the intersection of the Olympic Games and politics. And he's probably the best friend that we have of this show. Um, as I don't think he's missed an episode of the Wake Up and Win podcast. At least there was a point earlier in the year where that was the case. But who knows? We all get busy. Things happen. But still, certainly one of the closest people to this episode, somebody who's always willing to come on this podcast and somebody who broke down some of the things happening in this Portland protest that got worldwide international coverage. And it was so informative. It was so on point. It was so descriptive and i want y'all to sit back and listen to every gem that dr jules boykoff dropped here on this podcast in this particular clip in regard to the uprisings in the summer of 2020 just in a short two weeks since you and i have had that discussion and we plan to meet here right now as we're doing the president of the United States has, has sent his federal troops here to the city of Portland, Oregon, to just completely wreck shit. And we have, you know, protests going on out here. I think we're near 60 days now, correct? 60 consecutive days? Coming right up on it, yeah. Coming right up on 60 consecutive days of protesting here in the city of Portland um, since the George Floyd killings. But this is the first city that Trump unleashed his federal troops to come and, and try to see some things, which isn't quite working here in the city of Portland. But Jules, you've been out there quite frequently during these times. And I know you've certainly had some experiences out there on the front line, especially in these past couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, I just love to hear your perspective about what's going on in the streets of Portland right now as we're getting national and even international recognition um, for the protesting and obviously this back and forth between civilians and uh, federal troops and even the local police as well. Yes. Well, first of all, I just want to say thanks so much for having me back on the show, Devon. And I have enormous admiration for the work that you're doing in all these multiple spheres, you know, sports, politics. I'm a big listener to the podcast. And then, of course, you're doing all this terrific work down at Street Roots and also uh, pushing the, our elected officials to do the right thing in city government. So uh, and beyond in the metro area. So I just wanted to say I, I have enormous admiration for all you're doing on all these different fronts. And so, yeah, I've been going to these protests. Um, I would say, you know, we're coming up on 60 days. Like you said, I've probably gone out more than half of the different nights and I've attended a wide range of different types of protests for a little while there. There were some of these larger mobilizations that were rallies and marches. I attended some of those. I also have attended some of the events down at the Justice Center or what some people prefer to call the Injustice Center in downtown Portland, which is right next to the federal courthouse. And those tend to be festive on the early side of the night and then get a little spikier toward the later end. But one thing is for sure, if you been following the news, you probably have been hearing that uh, there's been a lot of violence on the streets of Portland. I just want to make one thing clear from the get-go, which is yeah. that a very vast majority of the violence that we've seen in Portland has come from Portland police and federal police. A vast, vast majority. I think that, that just needs to be said at the outset. 
the protests that I've attended have been led primarily by young black leaders in the city. Um, by there's been indigenous leadership as well. There's been a lot of acknowledgement of stolen land and and many people uh, doing the official land acknowledgements ahead of events. So it's about black lives mattering, but it's also about bringing everyone together to focus on that, including indigenous populations. We've seen a diversity of tactics across the board, whether it's sort of more family friendly marches, uh, whether it's or whether it's maybe seizing a highway. One time I was at an event that we basically took over Highway 84, the Banfield yeah. Expressway, and there was no traffic going in either direction and really sending a message about the seriousness of the protests. And there's also been recently a group of moms against police brutality who have gathered down at the Salmon Springs Fountain on the waterfront and walked up to the Justice Center in dramatic fashion and joined uh, the crowds that are up there. And these moms, they wear yellow and they link arms and they stand at the front lines and they block right in front of the police and the feds, you know, they block with their bodies. And they were joined last night by a group of dads in orange, uh, orange shirts. So you got wow. the yellow, you got the orange, almost like they have uniforms. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and so it was a huge crowd last night when you throw the dads in and there's just incredible momentum. Uh, last night, so Monday night, there was just a, a huge, huge amount of people on the streets of Portland in the thousands uh, out in front of the Justice Center and in front of the federal courthouse. And so it has been absolutely remarkable what these protests have been able to achieve in these few short days. And I'll, I'll leave you with this, that for now, that, you know, for starters, it affected the way that city council in Portland decided its budget and it shifted around $15 million out of the police budget. So we hear a lot from protesters about defunding the police. Well, it's actually happened here in Portland, not as much as activists were demanding. They were talking more about taking 50 million out of the police budget, mm -hmm. but they got 15 million out, including 4.8 that'll go over to the Portland Street Response, which I know that you've been running and working really hard on. So um, there's definitely that that I think is important. Second, though, the protests seem to be working because there's just been a shift in opinion. In the Washington Post ABC poll that just came out found that 69% of people polled in the United States say that black people and other people of color are not treated equal to whites in the legal system. Yeah. That is a record high. It's wow. up 15 points from 2014. So that's a huge spike in public opinion. And it's the first time that a majority of whites have said that black people and people of color are treated unfairly in the system. So this is momentum and we're seeing it right in front of our eyes. And maybe we can get a little bit into the police response and kind of yeah. peel back what's been Portland police and what's been the feds. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what I want to do here, because I know you've been out there, you've had um, your interactions before we got on this podcast, you alerted me that you have actually uh, been tear gassed out there and you've been hit with a few rubber bullets as well. Uh, pepper balls. Yeah. Pe pepper balls. Okay. Yeah. You've been hit with some pepper balls. You've been tear gassed. So you, you've been on, you know, uh, the opposite end of um, police out there 
just kind of wrecking the city and, and really uh, treating folks brutally, treating citizens uh, brutally here in the city of Portland. Um, but can you kind of speak more to that? Speak more to sort of those interactions that you have had. Um, obviously, we're a leading city when it comes to federal policing coming out here and, and acting in the way that they are. And there are still other cities in America that are protesting as well that could really and truthfully um, be under this same treatment sooner than later. So could you kind of just speak to what's going on uh, out here in the city of Portland from your experience? Yeah, that's a great point that Portland has become not only a tinderbox, um, but also a testing ground for yeah. President Trump and, and the terror tactics. I mean, that's what we're talking about, sending federal troops in. Um, and let, let's talk about those terror tactics. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners have seen the videos of federal police dressed in uh, camouflage popping out of unmarked rented gray vans and snatching people off the streets. And we used to call these snatch squads back in the day. And they're just snatching people and pulling them into these trucks and then hauling them away for, for questioning. And oftentimes they're not even creating records of arrests, which will make it very difficult later to use the Freedom of Information Act to figure out what actually was happening there. So you have the use of snatch squads. You've got the abundant use of tear gas. And I just want to pause for a second to say tear gas is actually outlawed by international treaty in international warfare. So the 1993 Chemical Weapons Convention bans the use of tear gas in international war. The United States is a signatory to it. The Senate ratified it. It yeah. went into effect in 1997. But there's a little carve out in that treaty that allows police, domestic police, to use tear gas in extreme situations. Uh, I don't know why they have that in there, but that's the why that little caveat, that little carve out for domestic police allows yeah. it to be legal. It's weird because like, it's why would weird. you? I didn't know you, that. Yeah. So why would you not allow it in international warfare, but for some strange reason, allow it here? But even in Portland, it's supposed to be a last resort. It's supposed to be when there's a riot happening, however they define that, or when police feel like there is an endangerment of life at that moment. Well, let me tell you, I've been at numerous protests where it's very relaxed, um, and yet they're still using the tear gas. It's difficult to see how they can justify it. There's been a lot of reporters and Portland for the Oregonian, the Mercury, uh, and I've seen a little bit in Street Roots too, covering how like that. Look, there, there's not been endangerment of life, and they're liberally using tear gas. They've also been using rubber bullets, like you've talked about. You know, the pepper balls as well. They sting when they hit you. They're often called less lethal. Um, but let's be clear, they can be lethal. There was an important study, an academic study that came out recently that analyzed the use of so-called less lethal weapons and munitions. And it found that 3% of people that are hit with these so-called less lethal munitions die. 3% die. Wow. Yeah. 15% who are hit with them walk away with permanent disabilities. So it's a bit of a misnomer for starters to call them less lethal. And second, just because they're rubber bullets doesn't mean they don't cause serious damage. And third, we've seen across the country, many people getting hit in the eyes with these things. And, you know, just the other night I was saying, you know, I got hit by the, the pepper ball, which was, you know, the least of my concerns. I got hit in the leg, but 
for, these things are flying everywhere. A friend of yeah. mine, she got hit in her neck. I mean, if that wow. just goes a few inches higher, she's blind basically in one eye and you can't control these things. You're supposed to be shooting them down, but they ricochet off things. I mean, it is incredibly dangerous and brutal uh, what the response has been from both the feds, the uh, federal officers, as well as the Portland Police Bureau. This next clip is going to be fun. It's going to be funny. It's going to be entertaining. It's going to be all the things as my friend, my guy, my brother, Andrew Greif, who is the beat reporter for the Los Angeles Clippers by way of the Los Angeles Times, sat down and talked with us about the story of Lemon Pepper Lou. Now, for those of you that don't know the story about Lemon Pepper Lou, this is Lou Williams, who plays for the Clippers, who went home to Atlanta, and this was during the time the bubble was getting ready to start, so there was a lot of restrictions and rules that Lemon Pepper Lou, aka Lou Williams, was supposed to abide by, but couldn't quite get the job done as he went to Magic City, which is a world-renowned strip club, strip club, excuse me, in Atlanta, Georgia, and he took a picture with the young hot rapper Jack Harlow. By the way, speaking of Jack Harlow, as a side note, he just dropped a really good album earlier this month, so I'd advise you all to check it out because I really enjoyed it. But anywho, sit back and enjoy this clip of myself and Andrew Greif as we break down the story of Lemon Pepper Lou, y'all. Now we're here. We are at the bubble. And you know I got to ask you about this, man, because you covered the Clippers. You've covered Lou Will uh, for the last couple of years now, being with the L.A. Times. And uh, now we got a situation where Lou Will ended up leaving the bubble and going to a funeral, I believe it was. Uh, and while he was out there, you know, doing what he had to do, condolences to him, his family, friends, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he ended up making a pit stop in Atlanta, and the pit stop was at a place called Magic City. For those that do not know what Magic City is, it is a strip club, and they, off they also happen to serve good food. Um, they have chicken wings there that have become particularly famous over the last few days. Um, so, Greif, man, I, I just got to ask you kind of what your general thoughts are on Lou Will and, and what he did and what took place. Did we as society overreact to this thing? I mean, what's your take on this entire ordeal? Well, there's no doubt that if he had gone to any other restaurant for the most part, uh, maybe an Applebee's just to really make it main street, uh, that it would not be the same kind of uproar as it has been <laughs> at the same time. It still might be the same length of time he's in quarantine, though, because okay. I, th I think that he was supposed to come back and serve a four day quarantine. But if if it kind of comes out, I think that you are out in public, uh, maybe doing more things than you told the NBA you would uh, before you leave. Who knows if he actually had to brief the NBA on where exactly he'd be the whole time. But uh, I think that the NBA is going to take this bubble concept seriously. And so uh, obviously the way it gets out, you know, with the tag on Instagram, Jack uh, Harlow, Jack Harlow. <laughs> and then, you know, it was, it was kind of, he dismissed it saying it was an old picture, but it really wasn't clearly because Lou was wearing a mask that you could basically only get in Orlando right now at the bubble. Oh, wow. Um, that element, I think that is something that, um, it took it from a, you know, kind of a, a violation rules, violation story to, uh, has, has Lou Williams put the entire integrity of the bubble at risk? 
Um, so it's, it's, I think it's terrible optics and that's what the sin was. You know, it was, I think that going to a funeral is risky right now just because of how many people could be there. Right. I mean, that's risky. Um, but the NBA had deemed that supposedly okay. I think that when you, when you are seen out in a public place, whether that's, you know, Magic City or somebody else, I think the NBA is going to take a real hard look at it. So the fact that it's a strip club, one of the nation's most famous strip clubs, you know, Magic City on a Monday, that's yeah, yeah, people, yeah. everyone, everyone <laughs> of a certain age kind of knows that lyric. Like, I, I just think that it's a really bad case of optics. Yeah, I, and I'll be honest with you, Greif. Like, I know the COVID-19 pandemic is something that we all need to be taking serious, you know. But for this particular incident, it was more so comedic to me because, I mean, the guys are in a bubble. There's loads and loads and loads of testosterone in the bubble right now. And just the thought of Magic City could probably get a lot of those guys excited. But the fact that Lou Will was able to be inside of those four walls of Magic City, even if it was just to get some food, obviously coming from the bubble and knowing you got to go back to the bubble. I mean, there's some guys out there that Mike would take advantage of that. <laughs> the thing I did not know until this week is that Lou Williams has uh, the lemon pepper wings named after him yeah. at Magic City. <laughs> so I, when he says it's his favorite restaurant in the world, uh, you, you kind of have to take him out his word on that because what, you know, he apparently he frequents it so often that they named it after one of their favorite customers. So, yeah. uh, yeah, it's, I, I've been, I was, I happened to be off that day on a furlough. So I'm seeing all this stuff blowing up and I, you know, bound by the rules of furlough, I, I can't do any work. Right. So yeah. I felt bad for my coworker who was <laughs> taking over for me that day. But, uh, yeah, that's why I like covering the Clippers. There's, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty rare that they are not making news. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and you really think about it. We are, like, as you just mentioned, this is a nationally acclaimed strip club. It's it's a place that a lot of people know about. And although Lou Will is an, an NBA player and a very successful one, I'm pretty sure there's much more like high profile celebrities that go to Magic City on a regular. And so for them to actually name some wings after Lou Will in particular, yeah, I mean, you can't be surprised that he, that he made that pit stop at all. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's unfortunate for him because he's going to lose money. He's going to lose two game checks because of it. Uh, he's going to miss Thursday's opener against the Lakers and then Saturday's game against the Pelicans. So um, that's going to cost him some money. Uh, I'm sure that those – it's quickly turned into very expensive wings, maybe the most expensive wings in his life. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but you know what? He's, he's also probably, he's also probably become magic city's number one customer of all time. Cause I cannot imagine the amount of interest and, and as money he's driving that business's way right now. Cause even the most, you know, straight edge people in the world now, all of a sudden know, what yeah. Magic City's wings are all about. And they probably right. are interested. Let's, yeah. Let's do that. It's a takeout. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, well. On this episode, we have my man, Aaron Fentress of The Oregonian. Now, Fentress is somebody who is an absolute character. And I got to be honest, it was one of my favorite episodes to do this year because I knew having Aaron Fentress on, you were going to get some laughs. You were going to get some opinions, some really strong ones. They're insightful, but they're strong. And some of those takes are hot nonetheless. But 
It was just somebody that I knew would be very engaging on multiple fronts for you all, the listeners and consumers. And in this particular segment, I want to talk about the bubble performance of Carmelo Anthony. As at the time, Aaron Finchers wrote an article in the Argonian about Carmelo Anthony and his performance. Many of us know that Carmelo was criticized for a couple years as he wasn't in the league and couldn't find a team to play for. So... Finchers has some good things to say in regard to Carmelo, and I want y'all to check it out and just listen to how fun and funny and insightful this guy is. Y'all check it out. Here it is. You know, obviously now you're there, you're back at the Oregonian, and you're covering the Blazers, as you mentioned, for the first time, full time. And I want to just get straight into some of the stuff that's going on in the bubble, starting off with them in particular, then we'll kind of branch out to the rest of the league. But um, first off, I got to come on my own platform and I got to give an apology to Carmelo Anthony. And here's why. About three years ago, yeah, three years ago, 2017, when I'm doing the Justin and Devon show, uh, I remember Dame was having his summer camp and Dame acknowledged the press he he had you know he had press come to all of his kids summer camps that he does every year so the press shows up dame comes and he speaks with the press press. pretty much openly trying to recruit carmelo anthony at that particular time and once that happened obviously we discussed it on radio it was one of my funner segments on radio because I, i i did a pitch to carmelo anthony and lala as well on trying to recruit them and support damon recruiting them to come here to the city of portland obviously that doesn't happen but after that he does end up getting signed with uh the thunder i believe it was and then he ended up signing with the rockets Both of those, I don't think, went so hot for Carmelo. And especially after that last rocket stint, I was kind of discouraged and I kind of felt like Carmelo had let me down because I had already really kind of that for Carmelo and supported him. And I felt like his comeback wasn't the comeback that I wanted to see from Carmelo. So you fast forward to November and the Blazers signed Carmelo Anthony, and I'm no longer excited for that move. It felt like a desperation move to me. I thought Carmelo's career was over. I wasn't even really sold on what he had to say when he went on first take, um, trying to kind of make a point to, to folks within sports media and obviously beyond that he felt like he still deserved a shot to be back in the NBA and that he can come and make a difference. But I'll tell you, man, he's come back this season and he's made a tremendous difference. I don't think the Blazers would even be in the bubble had Carmelo Anthony gotten signed. And obviously here in the bubble, he knocks down three big three-pointers, two in that first game and one last night that essentially wins the games, those two games for the Blazers. And instead of them starting 0-3 in the bubble, they're now 2-1. and um, But I know you wrote a piece today acknowledging Carmelo. Could you just kind of speak more to that piece and, and, and kind of – tell more why I was out of pocket for doubting the man in the first place? (laughs) (laughs) Well, interesting because I don't remember who show I was on. I I think I was either doing your show with Justin when you were off or I was with Kanzano. I can't remember who I was with, but it was when the whole uh, situation was going down in terms of where Carmelo was going to go and Portland was trying to get him. Yeah, like, I was. I, I remember being in the studio, but I can't remember who was across from me. The Kazana or that was just because you know, you, you, I know you. Ca- I know you came on and substituted for me and, and, and filled right. in for me at one point during that, that the show. Summer? So that was the summer. Yeah, that was the okay, summer. So, so maybe it was Justin and we were talking about Carmelo, and I was all for. It. I was like, yes, 
go get this guy. I hated that narrative out there. Like there were callers calling in talking about he's a cancer. I'm like, name one thing he's ever done. Like the, like Carmelo's a cancer. Like the way people talk about him, like he's a dog or something. Like what has he ever done? He's yeah. a ball hog. Okay. Yeah, you're right. He has been a ball hog at times, especially in New York when he played with nobody. But guess who else was a ball hog? <laughs> Michael Jordan was a ball hog. You know, Kobe Bryant was a ball hog. There's been a lot of good <laughs> ball hogs out there. They yeah. were ball hogs for a reason. So I was like, my feeling was if he came to Portland, he wouldn't be a ball hog. He would acquiesce to Dame because it was Dame's team. Right. He's near the end of his career. He just wants a chance to win. He hadn't won since I think he's been to playoffs once with the Knicks in eight years, I think, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, um, it was pretty bad. It was, I will say, for him to be as much of a ball hog as he was, to me, that was, he underachieved in New York. To me, he underachieved. And he I should think have but to New York, to the Bulls, we had a chance. Yeah, I, well, you're a Chicago guy, so of course you yeah. got a little, you got a little bit of stock in that, but, but I hear you. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I was all for it. And I thought it would work because he would give a scoring option. You know, if teams were trying to take away Dame or CJ, boom, you give it to Carmelo. Who's going to deal with that guy one-on-one? If he gets doubled, I believe wholeheartedly he'd give it up to those two. Like, I thought it would work perfectly. Of yeah. course, it didn't happen. He went to OKC, and then he goes to Houston for one year. I thought Houston he'd actually work out in Houston. It didn't for whatever reason. I never really looked into it, but I thought he was done. So I'm with you, actually, in the whole, eh, bring him back. Why? Um, and I, I wasn't against it. Like I was like, no, no way. Yeah. I didn't think he would have that huge of an impact. Right. Um, and clearly he has made an impact. Now I have to say this though. <laughs> hey, I get accused some. I get accused sometimes of being, you know, negative or whatever. I'm not negative. I'm a realist. Let's yeah. be real. What was their record with Carmelo Anthony this year? It wasn't that good. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like he – like, they went to the West Finals the year before. Right. With Aminu and Harkless and those guys. Now, you know, so to, for me to sit here and say that Carmelo Anthony came in and has been just this unbelievable presence and force, that's just not true. They were not going to the playoffs. Yeah. Uh with him, they were not winning a lot of games with him. It wasn't all his fault. I'm not saying it was because of him. I'm just saying that he wasn't allowing them to overcome their deficiencies, obviously, since they had a much worse record than they did since, like, Dane's first year. Right. Right? That, that, right. I've been on 500, I think, since Dane's first year. Um, so, you know, you have to be realistic. Now, that said, now, at this point in the bubble – yeah, you know he's rested. Like every, this, this is one of the reasons why I think the Lakers are going to run away with it because LeBron's West rested. Well, Carmelo's rested. He may be thirty six, but he's not feeling thirty six after a four month layoff. He kept himself in shape. He lost weight, and at the end of the day, you know, even if you you get older, you can still you know the last thing that goes is your jump shot, is your shooting touch. You're not going to lose that. You know, yeah. good shooters. You know, if you're an NBA shooter like Ray Allen at sixty five could drop 10 straight threes like it's nothing to walk yeah, away. absolutely. Because, right. So Carmelo is in his situation now because of Dan, because of CJ and Nurk, where he's basically the fourth guy, where he's getting these open looks in crunch time. Well, all that experience, all that moxie, those stones, that cold-bloodedness that's been in his heart his entire life, he's not scared of that moment. And yeah. now he's not scared of that moment. Especially he with has, no fans, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, that's it. He's, <laughs> he's had such so many, so few of those moments in the latter part of his career, and he's probably been craving and starving it for this. And he's getting the opportunity. He's making the most of it. And it's fun to watch because he is, like Gary Trent said, Gary Trent's like, man, everyone should apologize who said something bad about him. You know, he's one of my favorite players growing up. 
know, he's Carmelo Anthony. Like, it's like, put some respect on his name. You're talking yeah. about a 10-time All-Star, a guy who's going to be in the Hall of Fame. Um, he's delivering right now. So we'll see how, how it goes the rest of the way. Now, on this next clip, we had the great fortune of having Orlando Sanchez, who is the sports anchor of KGW News, which is the NBC affiliate here in Portland, Oregon. And I tell you, man, Orlando Sanchez is one of the better people that I've gotten to meet throughout my stint as a sports journalist and working in sports media. He's a good friend of mine. He's somebody who I admire and respect his work. And he's somebody who deservingly so was awarded this year for the great work that he does at KGW News. So although on this episode we talked Blazers, we talked music, we talked many things, I wanted to share this clip just to show you some of the diversity of this podcast too as we talk to Orlando Sanchez about him winning an Emmy this year and he talked about the process, the backstory, and even the reaction to when he found out he won an Emmy. So y'all sit back and enjoy this clip for what it is, man, because I think it was a great moment for Orlando and it was something that was really inspiring for me to see somebody that I know personally win an Emmy because I don't think I know anybody personally that ever that's ever won an Emmy before, at least not off the top of the head. Sit back and enjoy. But let's get back to Orlando Sanchez, because uh, we talked about that Emmy earlier. We acknowledged it. Um, but like I said, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper on that because I have no idea how that works. I don't know if it's you have to submit content to the Emmys or if the Emmys come out and seek you. Um, kind of give me a play-by-play on start to finish from when you first found out you were nominated or even before that, if there's something connected to the kind of timeline of you actually winning that Emmy award, just kind of break down how all that played out. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's somewhat simple, but I think it's a, it's a good question because you just see the trophy and you're like, Oh, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, is that the trophy behind you, by this. the way? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let me see that thing, man. Let me, let me get an up close and personal look at that thing here on the zoom call. Yeah, I'm not lying, man. It's, it's got my name on it. Crazy, it does right? have your name on it. <laughs> so, that's sweet, man. That's sweet. So, yeah, kind of give us the breakdown because, like you said, even though it may be simple, a lot of us just don't know. We just know how big it is to win an Emmy Award. So, yeah, break it down. Yeah, so for a lot of us, uh, people that are in the news industry and reporters and, and whatnot, um, they have it broken into regions. So... Um, for us, we would be in the uh, uh, Northwest uh, region. And our station really takes a lot of pride in, in, in these. And so every year our managers will be like, hey, the uh, Emmys are coming up. If you'd like to submit some work, um, here are the categories. And there's probably like uh, 60 categories or so. And it's, it's everything. It's you know breaking news, overall excellence, um, environment reporting, weather, uh, you know, uh, breaking news, 24 hour story photographers. I mean, it's got, there's a list, a a long list of of different things that are on there. And so what you'll do is you'll put together kind of like a demo reel Mm. of what you did for that year. And you'll say, what's your best stuff? Throw it down on there. And then you'll, you know, you'll send it to the committee, pay a fee, and then it gets sent out to other people that are in our field. So 
you know, it might get sent to somebody up in, you know, the, in the, uh, it might be New York or Chicago or Florida. It, it's pretty random and they'll put together kind of a panel and that panel will go through and judge these things. And it's based on like a, a point system. And so you have to get so many points and you could have a year where let's say like everybody submits stuff and it's just not that good. Yeah. It's so like you could technically have a year where like nobody won for that category. Uh-huh. But if like you had two people that submitted at the same time that uh, ended up with like the same amount of points, you could have two winners for that category. Mm, okay. So it's, it's really interesting. And so this is for the, the Northwest that, that we won. And this category was for sports anchor. And so what I did was I put together you there, there's specific um, criteria that you have to meet within it. Um, I won't bore you with that, but it was basically like, give us five examples of, of the stuff that you did uh, from this. And so <clears throat> I was covering Dame the night he, he hit the shot. Yeah. Over Paul George. Paul George. And we, and we had to go live yeah. right after that shot, man. Right. So, I mean, we're hyped and it's just like, Here's what happened. You're witnessing, you know, one of the greatest Blazers performances of all time. Yeah. One of the, you know, just historic monumental moments here in Rip City. So like that was one. Uh, two I did uh, was the Oregon women's basketball team's run to the final four. We had the privilege of going to Tampa to cover them. Yeah. And it was kind of like the flip side where it was this heartbreaking, just tough loss. And you're talking to Sabrina Ionescu, who, you know, we're all wondering if she's coming back or not after winning National Player of the Year. Right. So you're basically putting together as many as you can. Then I, I, I had an element. Um, we do a, a high school football show, Friday Night Flights. And I did a, our first segment from that show. And that one was dope because um, as, as many of you guys know, or if you have kids or anybody that, that uh, is going to these high school games, You'll see us out there for like a quarter or two, and then we're on to the next game. Yeah. Like we're trying to hit as many games as we can, man. And so that night I had the game of the week. So my job was to stay at that one game. And it was, um, it was Tiger and Mountainside uh, playoffs. Uh, I want to say it was the second round. But anyway, Tiger was a big favorite, uh, top seed. <clears throat> and it, can't, it goes to overtime. Dramatic game. I shoot it. But, like, it was so packed there that one of the parents saw me driving around just searching for a parking spot. And they were like, you can park in our driveway, man. Like park in our driveway. So wow. you can get to the game to get yeah, our yeah. kids on TV. Yeah. And so like, not only did I submit what we did, but I also told a little bit of the story behind the backstory. These, right. Uh, these games. So it gives you a better idea of like what we went through to, to get that on the air, but also they see, how it looked, you know, they see the finished product, which when you're on deadline, you're stressed out, you don't know if it's going to make it or not. It's very hard to stay focused. And, you know, some, sometimes it turns out really good. And other times you're like, man, we'll, we'll get them next time. And you know, that time it worked out. So it was just a lot of different layers of uh, exact, it was different examples of me either in the field or anchoring. And um, yeah, it, it worked out. What was your reaction when you first won the award? Be honest with me. I want raw emotion, all that. Did you cry? Did you break down? Did you jump for joy? Were you shocked? What was it? <laughs> Honestly, man, I, 
I, I was truly stunned because every year, like the best part of this is when they, when they, they tell you, Hey, you've been nominated. Um, we're going to throw We throw this big party at, up in Seattle. They're invited you and you and a guest and you go up there and it's kind of like prom for uh, people to get nominated. So you'll see people from the Seattle market. You'll see people from um, Boise. You'll see people from, you know, Eugene, you'll see people in Northern California as well. Some of the smaller markets, like if you get nominated, um, everybody meets in Seattle, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And it's this big party. They'll rent out an area. And so <clears throat> That is usually the thing that you look forward to. This year, they didn't have it, obviously, with the pandemic. So they did like a virtual thing, right? And I knew when it was, and I just kind of like, I was like, okay, I'll check it out as it gets closer. My wife and I actually went to like Fred Meyer to go get like groceries, man. Like we, it was just whatever, you know? And then yeah. we got back and I was like, man, the, the, the Emmys are on. I should, I should at least check it out, see who won and, you know, say congratulations to our, some of our, our colleagues and um the people that work at kgw and so i get on and it's probably like normally the individual awards are at the end yeah and this time they they had them kind of spread out and they were all over the place at least that was the way i saw it and so i probably got like two awards in and i'm like oh they're doing some of the individual stuff i'm gonna hang out and see what happens yeah and when i saw my name pop up i just kind of froze like nah yeah <laughs> and i looked at my wife and i was like I just won. Wow. And so for somebody like, I mean, you and I talking right now, like we could talk all day about stuff. Yeah. And in that moment, I really had nothing to say. I was just like, wow, I, I can't believe this. Like, man, I, like all the, all the, all the stuff that went into that, like you never think you're going to win something like that. Right. And so to have it happen, it's just like, it's stunning. It really is. So yeah, I'd say I was pretty shocked and it's pretty cool, man. Like I'm super grateful. And, it was also really dope to see uh, we had we had a lot of winners from KGW this year, more than I think we've ever had as a station. So really, it was it was cool because I got to share that moment, um, you know, texting some of the some of my other colleagues and stuff. And so that I, I wish we could have had that moment, everybody celebrating together. But at the same time, man, like it, it, it was such a boost. It was just such like a a positive moment in, in, you know, in time when we're all stuck at home trying to figure things out and, and, you know, live our new lives right now. And so like, even behind me, like I didn't even mention, like, this is my anchor. This is like my studio, man. Like yeah, I'm in, yeah, my, I'm in my living room, my, <laughs> my apartment right now. I've got like bobbleheads and stuff. Like I just needed a set. So I've, I've been anchoring my sports casts and doing my reports and all my zoom meetings here. And so, um, yeah, so it was just, it was a really cool, uplifting moment. Now, one of the most insane moments this year that we had and that I think sports has had was when the Milwaukee Bucks decided to walk out and not play in a playoff game in the bubble after the shootings of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which obviously is the home state of the Milwaukee Bucks. 
And it was something that I'd never seen before in my lifetime. And I don't know if we've ever seen a boycott of this nature and of this measure, which was a great measure, by the way, from the guys who are still left playing in the bubble in the NBA. And I had the great fortune of having two of my closest friends, two of my guys, Justin Myers, who many of you may remember from the Justin and Devon show back when we were on 750 The Game together. And we also had the guy who was our producer at the time, Alex Moore. And we just talked a little bit about the boycott that the NBA players decided to do back in the bubble. So just sit back and check it out as y'all hear Justin, Alex, and I chop it up like old times. A whole lot is going on. Justin, you already acknowledged the unprecedented week it's been in sports. And yesterday when I reached out to you, I said, hey, Justin, man, let's hop on the Wake Up and Win podcast. What do you want to talk about? Of course, Justin Myers wants to talk about college football. And we will. We will get to college football. (laughs) Believe you me, we'll get there. But then about an hour or so after that happens, um, the the Milwaukee Bucks decide, hey, we want to do something that's never been done before, and we want to boycott this playoff game five against the Orlando Magic. It spread like a wildfire. The entire league ended up boycotting yesterday. Um, I don't even know. I'm just getting off of work and hopping straight into the booth. Is there any games happening right now? I don't think so. No. So Today's all, games the, games, are all well. the games today have been postponed. They're going to continue, I believe, with meetings as, as we are taping this on Thursday afternoon. And I think they're going to try to get back to playing games on Friday or Saturday. So it's, it's still, I still think there's, there's some negotiate, negotiating going on, but uh, as of right now, no games uh, being played today. And there's, I saw four baseball games that have already been uh, postponed, postponed today as well. Solid, solid. Good to know. Now, I got to start off because I was one of the people when they were talking about NBA players boycotting before they even got to the bubble. You had obviously Kyrie Irving and Dwight Howard who were outspoken about it. Steven Jackson, who's a former NBA player, um, his friend was actually George Floyd. So he was very outspoken about it. And I came on here and I took a strong stance against boycotting this season coming into the season. And now that we're seeing a boycott midway into this restart, now that we're in the playoffs, a lot of those people that took that, that stance that the NBA should have boycotted before, they're no longer being nice to the people that criticized that take and that were not with the NBA players boycotting before the return. So they're letting us have it. Oh, you need to apologize to Kyrie. Oh, all you people thought you knew what you were talking about then. And now we ended up being right. Yada, yada, this, yada, yada, that. And I'm here for it to an extent. Like I get it. They, they feel like their point has been proven later than it should have been. And they could be potentially right. But I still stand on what I said back then in regards to the NBA not being boycotted before this, because for one, I think them boycotting during a restart while the NBA playoffs are going is a much stronger stance than it would have been beforehand where everybody's communicating through text and zoom and Instagram and social media. And you got 
takes and stances all over the place. They are all in the same bubble right now. And it seemed to me that like yesterday when they decided to boycott, it had more of a feel of like a united front. It didn't have a feel of this click over here wants to play. This other click doesn't want to play. This other click doesn't really care. Another click over there is kind of stuck in the middle. It didn't feel like any of that. It felt like a united thing. So to see that ripple out into other sports as well, I think it was much more powerful that they did return. And now that they're here, they decide to boycott midway through the season because of obviously um, the nastiness of the shooting of Jacob Blake out in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I was also happy to see that the Bucks were the team to lead the charge, being that they're from the state of Wisconsin <laughs> and everybody else decided to follow. Justin and Alex, what are y'all feelings during this time right now as we've never seen anything like this before? Well, going back to what you were saying, I, I'm, I, I, I agree with you, Devon. It's just if, let's say, the NBA players would have followed what Kyrie Irving wanted to do. And, and again, not saying that he's right or he's wrong. This is how he decided that, that he felt that the league should take a stand with what was going on at the time. And it felt, for him, inappropriate to be playing basketball. But they came back. If they would have boycotted, what would have happened then? It would have been, I think, a huge news story for about two, three days. Yeah. But, but baseball was coming back. Uh, soccer was coming back. See, Alex, I dropped soccer in there for you. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, golf it, it was back at the time. Sports were coming back. NFL was starting training camp. And then in the sports world, we would have just, I think, found something else to watch because there was no NBA. The fact that it started and then this happened in the middle of the playoffs, I think has 10 times more weight than if they would have never have gone. Yeah. So I, I think that that's, that, that's the one thing we you're talking about. Well, Kyrie was right. Well, not necessarily. Um, but the other thing is with the Milwaukee Bucks right now, looking back, it seems like it was the right thing to do, but the, the courage to be able to do that, keep in mind, they didn't know, from what I understand, and they didn't communicate to any other teams. They did this organically as a team. They didn't yeah. know that the Magic were just going to not accept a forfeit. Because at the time, of 24 hours ago, it was a forfeit. They were, and they were going to give up a game in the playoffs, which would have made it a 3-2 series. And they're one of the favorites in the East to go to the finals. Not that that matters in the big picture, but... This is what they were risking. They didn't know the rest of the teams were then going to continue to follow suit. So the idea that the Milwaukee Bucks kind of put their season on the line for this, I mean, that's as courageous as it gets. Yeah, one thing that, you know, I've been just watching this whole thing and hearing everything that's coming out, and I'm just, I'm so sick and tired of people talking about what the NBA players should do or how they should do it. There is no one in this world who's in the position to tell them what to do. They can absolutely, you know, go and just to make sure this is not a boycott. This is a strike, right? These are players that are not going to work. So this is a strike, not a boycott. A boycott is when you refuse to buy something because you don't like someone, right? So this is a strike. I mean, te technically, is it, isn't it, wouldn't we call this a, this is a walkout, right? Because the strike is sure. something against management. And I don't, uh, this isn't yeah. them protesting management it seems like it was it was a walkout kind of though right i mean they're saying that they want i mean potentially they're saying they want their owners to do more so either sure. way, that's a debate over words but 
I'm just so tick, sick and tired of people telling NBA players or whoever how they should how they should react to this. Nobody is in a position to tell anybody how to react to what's going on right now. In the world, things are things are going absolutely so terribly, and we're seeing this stuff day after day. It keeps happening. It keeps happening. And then some people, uh, talking heads, go on the news and they tell NBA players how they should act. You know, whether or not how they want to do this is up to them. And, you know, if they think that this is the more powerful way to do it, which I think it absolutely has been in the doing it in the playoffs, go for it. Absolutely. Yeah. There, no one's in any place to tell them to come back. No one's in any place to tell them that they should they shouldn't play. You know, they need to keep doing their meetings. They need to keep talking and they need to figure it out on their own. So, you know, I don't think anyone's in a place to tell them how they should act right now. Now, the episode that this next clip comes from is one that I was really proud of, and I was really proud of it because I got to bring on somebody who is a mentor of mine, somebody who I was a former colleague of, somebody who I was an intern for. He's currently the sports columnist for The Oregonian. He also hosts the Ball Face Truth radio show on 750 The Game. You also might even see him on Sports Sunday from time to time on KGW News. John Canzano joined us. And on this episode, and in this clip in particular, Canzano joined us to talk about an annual list that he puts out in the Oregonian for the top 25 most influential sports figures in the state of Oregon. Now, this one was very different from many of them that I've seen in the past, especially at that number one spot, as he had Governor Kate Brown as the number one most influential person in Oregon sports. Some of you may be like, hmm, I wonder why. Well, here the clip is as we discuss and break down Kanzano's top 25 list. But uh, let's get into some content here, because last week you released your top 25 most influential sports figures list. It's an annual list that you put out. Um, It sparks up all kinds of conversations here in the market. Um, I know some people are honored and grateful to be a part of that list. You probably got some people that are a little salty that they didn't make the cut. Um, <laughs> you certainly got a, a huge base of, of, you know, listeners and subscribers that check the list out and are invested in it. But 2020 has obviously been an odd year. I want to know what was the criteria for your list this year in comparison to maybe other years or does the criteria stay the same? For me, when I started this, and look, I started this like 18 or 20 years ago when I got here, I, I showed up and I said, you know, who are the difference makers? And I started keeping a list over the course of a year. And then somebody said, you should print that list. Yeah. And uh, media are not eligible, so I don't want to be pandered by media. But it, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was really interesting because my initial thought was it's going to be Paul Allen, Phil Knight. It'll be the same characters over and over again every year. And ultimately... What I have found is that there are five or six brand new people to the list every year, and it's never the same. And 2020 is a great example of that. There's six newcomers to the list. The number one is a new person, Governor Kate Brown. And with that, I would say, like, influence doesn't necessarily mean positive or negative influence. It's Mm -hmm. just impact. It's juice. It's who matters. Who are the difference makers? Who moves the needle in the market? And I feel like You know, some people took offense that I put the governor at number one, but Governor Kate Brown held the keys to youth sports, high school sports, all the counties. Still, the colleges that are located across the state still have are still, uh, you know, have to pass phase one, phase two, phase three uh, criteria in order to get back to playing. Portland State, for example, you know, the big sky college basketball could start on November 25th. 
they have to be in phase three in order to practice. Mm. So they may be delayed and the rest of the big sky can play. And to me, that's influence. Yeah. And if Portland state is delayed, obviously I'm delayed as well because <laughs> yeah. I am the college basketball analyst over there. But um, I want to dig more into Kate Brown being number one on the list and exactly why you put her there, because obviously um, we love kind of that intersection of sports and politics here on this podcast. So tell me a little bit more why Kate Brown ended up becoming number one for you. I think it's a one-off year, right? In most years, she's not going to register. She uh, she has become more of a sports fan. She's been more visible, especially at Oregon and Oregon State women's basketball games. So she's been there. I've seen her. She seems invested in it. And that's great. That doesn't get her on the list, but it's interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, but just 2020 being this coronavirus, uh, you know, nightmare for everybody is it puts her in such an interesting position. And you saw the youth sports scene in this state just absolutely come to a crawl. There are parents that are frustrated. There are still swim coaches who can't figure out why the swimming pools aren't open. Uh, can, you know, at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, when she initiated sort of her directives, she left sports out of it altogether. And I thought that was really interesting. I, I was getting buried with emails from parents and coaches and, you know, program directors who were saying, Hey, um, we're trying to have a season here. Can we practice? Can we not practice? Can six kids get together? Can three kids get together? So she held the keys. And I think hopefully this is a one-off, right? Because hopefully we move through this, uh, we get some therapeutics and maybe a vaccine. And Kate Brown's not as influential in the sports scene moving forward. But right now, she's got control of this thing. And, yeah. you know, I was talking to the Big Sky this morning and I said, what's your plan? They said November 25th, but we're waiting for directives from the NCAA. But You've got Eastern Washington, you've got Sacramento State, and you've got Portland State that are all going to be looking at the governors in their respective states going, can we practice? Because right now, Multnomah County, where Portland State is located, Kate Brown says you have to be in phase three in order to have full contact practices. So if you're Barrett Peary at Portland State or you're the women's basketball program at Portland State, you can't have a normal practice like some of the other Big Sky Conference members without Kate Brown and the high school sports scene got pushed to the spring. That was all the governor in this state in Utah. They're playing, they're playing high school football. So yeah. I'm not really debating whether it's the right decision or wrong decision, but Kate Brown had the keys. Absolutely. Now I want to stick to women here because you did have Sabrina Ionescu on the list. Now for me personally, I thought she was a bit far down. I think you had her at 22 on the list. Um, that was a bit far down for me. And a lot of the reason obviously is because what she's been able to do at the university of Oregon. Um, she's, you know, unfortunately not to be, you know, mortal here or, you know, not to really kind of speak to death, but her connection with Kobe Bryant, I think that raised her profile in ways that obviously none of us wish would have happened or taken place. But the reality is it did. Um, the WNBA is kind of taking the stance that they're, that they're taking right now. And she's obviously one of the more prominent figures in that league. Why so low for Sabrina? Yeah, I had her much higher a year ago. I think I had her 11th a year ago. She's dropped. I felt like a couple things happened there. A, had they finished their season and she goes to the final four again and they win the thing, she's much higher. Yeah. B, she's graduated. She's left the state and she's now in New York playing her professional basketball. And But I still think she has impact. I mean, Kelly Graves told me uh, that, you know, he asked all of his incoming players, who's your favorite player? And they used to say Kobe, Kevin Durant, Steph, you know, they give, you know, uh, an NBA player's name. 
He said he has five McDonald's All-Americans who came in this year at Oregon, uh, in large part because of Sabrina. I mean, that's her impact, and that's why she's still on the list. But he asked them, who's your favorite player? All five of them said Sabrina Ionescu. Yeah, yeah, she, she's like that. She's really that good. Um, but no, man, that was a great list. And like I said, it, it's something that sparks great conversation. I saw um, Portland State Athletics Director Valerie Cleary reach out to you and say that she, she was obviously honored to be on the list. I think she was at like 24, but um, she thought that John Cazano also should be on that list. And I know no you media, said man. that media no can't make it. But, 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 but I think that comment is to be acknowledged because of this, the discussions that you spark, you know, in this region and really nationally, good, bad, or in between, regardless of how people feel about it. Yeah, Valerie Cleary is interesting because as I look at the list, and this is something maybe you could help me with, because I look at this list and, you know, I get to 25 and there's a group below that where you could take any number of the people who were the near misses. There's about another 25 or 30 names there. You could take five or eight of those and, and make an argument that they should, be, they should be on the list. Barrett Perry, basketball coach, Portland State. Bruce Barnum, the football coach at Portland State. Scott Lakeham, the athletic director at University of Portland. You can make arguments for a lot of those players, you know. And, uh, and the thing that strikes me, though, is you have Valerie Cleary and you have Damian Lillard. Those were yeah. the only two... Uh, black people who are on this list. Yeah. And I, every year I'm looking at this list, I'm waiting for the Blazers, I'm waiting for the Timbers, I'm waiting for Oregon State or Oregon, somebody to put a person of color in a position where I have to put them on the list. And that's frustrating to me. And I'm looking at the Blazers and they have like a director of communications uh, who is a person of color. And that's, okay, that's cool. Yeah. But I can't, you know, I, I sh it shouldn't be incumbent upon me to make that change. I, and I and we hear a lot of talk about people saying, well, we we're all about opportunity. But where are the opportunities on this list? And I think this list screams that. Yeah. That if you're the Blazers, the Timbers, uh, Oregon State, Oregon, I think it's shameful that there's not more diversity that uh, I'm challenged to put on this list in positions of sports management in particular. Because without Lillard and Valerie Cleary, this list is white. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because I'm even looking at what's going on in the streets of Portland with like Black Lives Matter protesting and I'm looking at a lot of the coverage of it. Um, and even that seems to be infiltrated with white people. And I'm, obviously I'm speaking from a different landscape there, but when you look at what the actual issue is that we are covering here, to see that it's so white dominant is really interesting to me in regards to the coverage and what a lot of these publications and, you know, a lot of these news organizations are putting out there. So, I mean, I think you deal with that, you know, in, in a lot of different landscapes and maybe CJ McCullum is the other black athlete that could have made the top 25 list. Um, and then I also think of, I'm thinking of, uh, Somebody off the timbers, the guy, he's super political. I, I, you know who I was looking at was uh, Jaden Grant, Brian Grant's kid. I think yeah. he, his influence has really risen. But, you know, okay, so in a given year, over the years, I've had LaMarcus Aldridge on the list or, um, you know, I've had uh, Brandon Roy on this list or Greg Oden on this list. What I'm really looking for is, you know, since the Trailblazers president, Larry Miller, left the organization – you know, you have a, uh, you know, the, the top tier of the management positions with the Blazers are white and yeah. Timbers are white. And I think if the question for them, this is something I'm really thinking about writing in a column form is I don't think they have a comfortable answer for this because yeah. 
a couple of years ago, I raised the idea that there weren't more women in positions of management. And mm-hmm. I was told, oh, we're really making an emphasis and a push. Well, why is it incumbent upon, you know, uh, really this list is a reflection of the state. Yeah, it is. And, and what this is saying is unless you're an athlete in this state or you're Valerie Cleary, um, this list is white. And I think if I'm the Timbers, Thorns, Blazers, Oregon and Oregon State in particular, I'm going, hey, we don't really have a good answer for this. Maybe we need to look at ourselves. Now, I got one of my more narcissistic clips coming up now. And the reason being was I had the fortune of accomplishing something that I never could have imagined, something that I never had plans or dreams or aspirations to accomplish as a kid, because quite frankly, I didn't see many people that came from where I came from that was able to do this. I got to bring on Jessica Luther, who's an author, who co-wrote the book Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back with with Kavitha Davidson, excuse me, of The Athletic. And I had the great fortune of being able to give a statement for this book. And I was in the media, the sports media chapter where it was a list of underrepresented folks who work in sports media, just giving some commentary about the different experiences and the unique experiences that we all face as sports journalists. So this was one of the moments that I was definitely most proud of overall in the year of 2020. And. I greatly appreciate Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson for allowing me to be a part of this book, which I deem to be an absolute masterpiece and a moral compass for sports fans. So y'all check out this clip as I got to talk to them a little bit about that. And also make sure you go purchase the book. Um, Moving right along, I want to talk about um, and not to be narcissistic here, but the chapter that I was actually a part of, <laughs> and it was titled Consuming Sports Media, Even If You Don't Look Like the People on TV. Um, first and foremost, I want to thank you both so much because this is the first book that I've ever even been asked to write a statement for and to know that I actually made the cut and had my little statement in the book. Oh, man, it, it was it melted my little heart over here to read that and see that. Um, well, so, you're yeah. the perfect person for it, Devon, because you are someone who was like, I don't see a lot of people. That yeah. remind me of me and the media that I consume. And like, look at you now. Like, I met you when you were in college. Yeah, you did. I'm just so impressed. <laughs> like, you went out and just made the media that you wanted to see. Absolutely. Well, you fit perfectly. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and kind of piggybacking off of what you just said there, I loved how you guys formulated that chapter by asking people that are underrepresented in the media space for their statements in this particular chapter. So you can kind of hear this range of answers that many people who are of color or, you know, are women or, uh, you know, are just underrepresented in general within the sports media uh, sphere, you got to hear from them directly and what it is they had to say. So can you two kind of speak more to that and how that came about, like in your own conversations behind the scenes that, hey, with this chapter, we should get people from all types of underrepresented, um, you know, places and spaces and have them come speak to their experiences here in this book. Hmm. Pretty sure it was Jessica's idea to do the statements instead of doing um, a, a, a traditional chapter the way that all of our other chapters are are laid out. And the statements, you know, and we didn't really even ask targeted questions, right? It was like really open ended, and you know, I think especially because you know the whole point of the chapter is people who don't 
you know, look and sound like everybody else in sports media. So those like those people are also going to have completely different and a completely wide range of reactions and thoughts to this. So having something be open-ended and just having that, like their words be able to speak for themselves, I think was, was really important to that chapter. Yeah. It ends up, it's mainly, it's like an oral history, right. Yeah. Of this moment um, for people who are underrepresented groups within sports media. Part of it though, was just a practical thing. Like when it came time, it was like, okay, well we want all these different voices and how do we, how do you literally write all these different voices in the sort of standard format that we have the other chapters and you start to, it gets hard to keep up with all the different voices as a reader. So there was a practical idea behind it. And then it was like, okay, so who do we want to ask? And we realized like to really get the breadth that we would need in order to represent all the underrepresented groups, yeah. it was going to take a lot of voices. So kind of, there was an organic nature to it within like the writing process. But then just when it came time to figure out who to ask, it was like, well, we got to have South Asian voices. We got to have non-binary voice. Like it was like, let's make sure that all these, as much as we can represent yeah. all these different groups so that we do get this wide range. And so it just, yeah, it kind of just ended up that way. That was the only way to make sense of it, I think. And I think for, you know, all the other it's a really good table setter for all of the other chapters in the book because, you know, what we're really getting at with with this chapter is that it matters who is presenting stories and news to you. It matters when it comes to the framing and the narratives and just the stories that are chosen. Um, so, you know, when you only have white men telling you, talking to you about sports, you're only going to get that singular narrative um, around sports. So it was really important. Um, to show the breadth that can exist in order to tackle all of the other issues that we do lay out in the book. Yeah. No, like I said, conceptually, I just think that was a very well put together chapter. And I'll be honest with you. I'm glad that I got weaved into that chapter rather than any other chapter, not speaking negatively about any other chapter, but like I said, I just, I just loved kind of the creativity and how you put that chapter together because I really didn't know, especially like I said, some of it can be narcissistic, but you know, since you've asked me for that statement a while back, Jessica, and just kind of sitting in the land of unknown, like, am I going to be in the book? Am I not going to be in the book? There's been a hundred different ways that I've actually looked at how that quote could be placed in a book that I have yet to read that I don't really know all the directions that yeah, this book is going to go in. Us. Yeah, I really did. Yeah. And so to see that that was the way things worked out and being able to be a part of that long list of folks that are underrepresented like myself, which is something that obviously isn't really the case in my day-to-day -day career. I think that was special for me to be a part of and say that I was a part of because I don't really get that opportunity in my actual day-to-day -day work that I do. So it was just cool all the way around there conceptually. Um, That's so funny because my memory of that chapter was collecting all the stuff and we had it all. And I feel like for months and months, it was just kind of piled together. Mm -hmm. And it was like, we'll figure out what to do it. Like, I just feel like we were like, we'll figure out what to do with it. We'll figure out what to do with it. And it really didn't come together in the type form. Casey again was very helpful in sort of getting it to its final form. But yeah, I'm so glad that it comes off the way that it does. Cause I can, it was a real struggle to make sure that it wasn't too much, but yeah. that everyone was included and doing that sort of dance was, it was like a last minute sort of put together and so thrilling to hear you say yeah. that. Yeah, it was powerful, it was powerful.
Now, this next clip comes from an episode that numbers wise was very engaging. Um, Obviously, it was informative because that's what we do here on this podcast. We like to educate when we can. But we had the great fortune of having NBA veteran Etan Thomas, who's also an activist. He's a journalist. He's an author. He's a podcast host. He's just a man that wears many hats. But in this clip in particular, he discussed an article that he wrote for BasketballNews.com where he criticized some of the commentary that Charles Barkley, a.k.a. Chuck, and Shaquille O'Neal, a.k.a. Shaq, had to say on NBA on TNT in regards to the verdict of Breonna Taylor's case. So sit back, check it out, and listen to Etan Thomas speak to us verbally about the article that he wrote for Basketball News in this regard. And I want to talk about the most recent piece that you wrote for basketballnews.com. It was a piece about Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal following the verdict of the the Breonna Taylor case. Um, Mm. You wrote this piece because they went on on NBA on TNT, Inside the NBA, which is their show that they do um, prior to and post many of these NBA games and obviously NBA playoff games. And they both said some things that you didn't quite agree with. And you said that they didn't give you enough context and there were some facts missing from some of the things that they said. So can you just start off and saying um, what was some of the critique you had of Shaq and Charles Barkley before we dig deeper into the article? Oh, goodness. I mean, I, I, I thought it was just morally irresponsible. <laughs> That's yeah. the way I can say it. I thought it was disrespectful. I thought it was disrespectful to Breonna Taylor, um, you know, her family. I thought it was disrespectful to all of the, um, the, the, the activists that have been taking up her, her cause, all the NBA players who have been passionately, you know, you know speaking about this. And, and si- since they started the entire bubble season, you know, I, I thought it was just disrespectful all around. And I, I just, it just wasn't factual what they were saying. And, it, it, you know, it, they, they, repeated false narratives and then made their conclusions based on those false narratives, not yeah. on actual facts. I mean, I just had a problem with it all around. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I for sure. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, in, in one case, obviously there's some insensitivity around the situation because they're doing it and speaking about it just after the verdict came out where essentially the murder of Breonna Taylor absolutely had nothing to do with the actual verdict that came out and the charges that were made to officer Brett Hankinson. Um, but I want to talk about some of what Shaq said, because Shaq, yeah. I think, Although he agreed with what Charles Barkley said, I think Shaq tried to create a narrative where it was policy versus actually arresting the cops of Breonna Taylor, where essentially he was saying that the cops were doing their job and that they shouldn't be, I guess, in trouble or arrested and that we need to more so look towards policy and being able to change that. Where do you kind of stand on that fine line of obviously many of us wanting to see policy changes such as like the no knock warrant, for example, and then people actually wanting justice in this particular case and wanting those cops that murdered Breonna Taylor arrested. Well, people that talk about policy, I mean, they have to remember slavery was legal, you know, segregation was legal. Um, all of those things were definitely legal. So it's not like you can use that as a backdrop to be able to, you know, okay something because it was legal. People yeah. don't mean anything. You know what I'm saying? That, 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 that shouldn't even be expressed. You know, I mean, yeah. every lynchings were legal. 
You know, that they were actually legal for them to lynch a black man. That was legal for them to sell us, you know, from place to place. All that was legal. So for a black man to say that is just ridiculous and, and completely, um, you know, but there, there was, I mean, there's so much, we could, we could dissect it all because there was so much wrong and it wasn't even a long segment. There was just so much wrong with everything that they said. Yeah. And, you know, we, we could just go, but that part, as far as they was just doing their job, I mean, that was, I mean, even, even, okay. So even in saying they were doing their job, they weren't doing their job correctly. I mean, so even if they were going to do a no knock warrant and they just recently, you know, um, instituted there or passed the Breonna Taylor law and which, which they're, they're outlawing, um, no knock warrants in state, which is great. Um, but even in executing a no knock warrant, everything was wrong from that. You know what I mean? You had right. people that were never that were that didn't work together, so they didn't know the strategy with each other. They they had all been a part of a different botch case um, a year or two earlier where they didn't do that correctly. You look yeah. at all of their different histories, except for the Brent uh, Hackinson. That's his Brent, name. Brent, Brent Hankinson, Yep. He shouldn't even been a police officer. All of the different things about sexual assault, all the different you know accusations of of um, excessive force, all of those things. So they they shouldn't even been on the force. Number one, and when you look at the the the, the witnesses who said, okay, you 10, 11 people said that they didn't hear them announce anything. Then you have one witness who at first said no, then they did again. He said no. Another time he said no. Then on the third time he said yes. I was like, okay, wait a minute. What happened from all those three, three or four times to make him say, yes, he heard the police announce something on the fourth or third time they interviewed him. Yeah. That should raise suspicion. Why would he change the story? 100%. You know what I mean? But you Absolutely. have all the people, all the people who said they heard nothing. So, so even if you're looking at the details, you're going to say that they, they're, 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 um, you know, just serving the warrant and doing their job. The way that they did it, if it's supposed to be a, a they, they decided to change it at some point to be a knock warrant, right? right. So they're right. knocking, they're knocking, right? Regardless, they, they, it was a no knock warrant, but they knocked. For you not to announce yourself in a state that where they, they have stand your ground laws, they are in the state. Yeah. And it has been used numerous times. So then at that point, it's civilian to civilian. So somebody who knocks on your door, you have the right to be able to protect your home and your property and stand your ground. And he had a licensed gun. I mean, that, that, so, so you, for you to just say, well, for Shaq to say, well, he shot the cop first. Yeah. I'm like, well, hold up. You have to give context to that. There's a whole <laughs> lot else that happened, yeah. you know what I mean, leading up to that. And I just thought it was irresponsible for them to present it the way that they did. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and just more so, it's interesting you say that because in the article you acknowledged that, and I'm proud you did that, you know, this is a TV segment where obviously they may not have had enough time to be able to give this context, but the mm-hmm. reality is when you're speaking to this particular situation that mm-hmm. these players are taking so seriously that obviously many people in the public are taking seriously, you don't even bring up what it is that you brought up if you can't give the if you can't get the context necessary don't speak on it don't speak on it exactly (laughs) and i love it or you don't speak on it yeah yeah you don't speak on it speak on it all the way (laughs) right right and that was my issue i don't have no problem with them speaking on it but you got to present it the right way you got to you know what i mean you got to do your research you got to be able to present facts you can't do how they do 100 percent 
my goodness. Now, this episode here was one that was probably the most unexpected episode that I had in the year 2020. And the reason is I had the great, great, great fortune of having former and newly retired NBA player Darrell Wright, also the new broadcaster for the pre and post game show for the Golden State Warriors over at NBC Sports Bay Area. And the reason why this episode was such a shocker, because I was fortunate enough to have Coach Jones, who we had on this podcast as well this year, come on the podcast, discuss what we had to discuss. And then he reached out to me and was like, you know what, man? You know, I got a line with Darrell Wright. He's a friend of mine, and I really think that you and him could have a good conversation here on your podcast. So shout out to Coach Jones for being able to connect those dots and have me and Darrell Wright have a conversation here on this podcast. But what I did not know was that the week that Darrell Wright and I recorded this podcast was the week that he was going to announce his retirement from professional basketball. My goodness, what an exclusive podcast we had here as this was the very first podcast that Darrell Wright joined as a post-professional basketball player and we got to discuss his retirement and also his new his new show the text message talk show which is one of the best concepts that i thought i saw this year in regards to media in particular and he is in partnership with the players tribune for that show so go ahead and check that out but check out this clip where we talk about Darrell wright's retirement and the text message talk show you why it's my pleasure to have you because on Sunday I text you and I'm like yo D right you know I wanted to see if I can get you scheduled and come on the podcast for Wednesday I usually uh-huh. schedule my guests on Wednesdays and so you holler back at me I was like you know what Wednesday might not be so good of a day for me let's uh-huh. try Thursday all right bet we're gonna make it work how we gotta make it work but right. what you didn't tell me was that the reason that you wasn't available on Wednesday was because you was announcing your whole retirement from the game. (laughs) Yeah, man, I've been, I've been sitting on it for a minute. I I had some other stuff in motion. So I wanted to make sure all that stuff was going uh, as planned. So that was the day I picked like, man, I'm just going to let everybody know. Cause you know, people always ask me, are you playing? Are you playing? You done? And I'm always giving people, you know, half answers. Like, I don't know, but deep down I've been knowing for, you know, probably the last year, that I want the year of that, you know, it's going to be my final season. Absolutely. And we're going to get in, obviously, a lot more of your basketball career. But I do want to stick to this a little bit. And on this podcast, we weave it all in. Politics, culture, hip-hop, music, everything. The first okay. thing I want to ask you about is when I went and I saw your retirement post, you had the graphic. You was in front of the house, I'm guessing, in L.A., which is your, your yeah. neighborhood, your hometown. Uh-huh. You had all your jerseys hanging up. And then I swiped, right? Okay. And then I saw the same graphic. But then I heard ring, ding, dong, <laughs> ring, ding, ding, banger. Yes, sir. <laughs> what made and you, that was so fire. Yeah, what made you pick that song in particular? So I got to give all the credit to Art Mob when it came to that. I It was my vision as far as that picture is from the, my childhood home where I grew up in. And I did that photo shoot for Dime Magazine in 2010. Okay, and I always knew that was a picture I wanted to have my jerseys in the back. Uh, had a uh, my favorite shoes in high school on the wire. So he was the one that picked the the song. I did all. I had the vision on the on the picture. So 
I got to give all the credit to Art Mob. He killed the picture and he killed it with that song. That was a perfect song. Great song, great song. I thought I was, I thought I was watching Smokey drive down the street. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and the funny thing, the funny thing is, I grew up off Imperial and Western. If you okay. remember, they say they was on Normandy and Western, so that's right down the street from me, man. Oh so yeah, that's hard. You can make more sense. Nostalgic, man, nostalgic. But I want to talk about what you're doing right now. Like I said, we'll get more into the hoop stuff and some of those particulars. But right now, man, you got what I think is. I would say a top five concept in 2020 and we're in a year. It's a pandemic. Obviously everybody has kind of get, had to get in their creative bag and really be on their shit and trying to figure out what they could do to separate themselves as content creators during a pandemic where everybody is like, I at least have time to give it a shot. And you came up with this concept, the text message talk show. Tell me more about how that concept came about and we'll get into some of the interviews because I got some questions I'm ready to flip back on you that you sent to some of the guests that you've had. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, I knew, I'd been knowing for a few months that the Players Tribune, they were looking for somebody to do something, somebody that had a a large uh, Rolodex of friends and entertainment and, uh, and, you know, different celebrities. So uh, when they reached out to me, you know, I had my own mind made up as a podcast, bringing people on, you know, and, you know, they was like, what do you think about a text message? show i'm like what you mean yeah you know, I, i'm kind of taking it a little person i'm like hey, so I got <laughs> a think smile, a <laughs> nice laugh. people are not gonna be able to feel my personality what do you mean by that so you know they explained it uh my first run was with nate rob and q rich and they killed the interview and they made it they, they killed it so much where we had to make it an episode so uh, once, you know, we did that first episode, I was like, I see the vision. So yeah, that, that, that credit goes to the player tribune. I'm just happy that they picked me, uh, to be the person that really break, you know, a text message talk show, which is unheard of. Nobody knows what or ever thought of that. It's no, crazy to me. So, it's crazy. Yeah. So salute to player tribune for giving me that opportunity for real. It really is crazy because I got a cousin. His name is Simba. You might he's been having a freestyle circulating this week. Brown reposted it. It's been going crazy. Okay. Yeah, he, signed, yeah. he signed to Atlantic. He lives out there in LA too. But yeah, I know you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So that's my cousin. So interestingly enough, before he released that LA Leakers freestyle that just went all over the place, yeah. he he sent it to me on Saturday before it was okay. released, right? And at the time I had just got done talking to Coach Jones. Shout out to Jones for, for linking us two together. Sure. And I had started looking through your talk show. And I'm just okay. I'm just sliding and swiping and sliding and swiping. And it felt normal. All and right, so right. I don't know if I was just blowing smoke or if you just kind of had me in my marketing bag. But at that <laughs> time, when Cuz sent me the video, I hit him right uh-huh. back. And I said, look. I'm look. I'm watching the. I'm looking at the text message talk show right now. It's uh-huh. a dope concept. I'm sliding and swiping. I said, when you post that freestyle, it's so hard. Don't post it as an IGTV video. Make oh. sure we got the swipes because it's so much more natural for us to slide and swipe on our on our phones, even when it comes to production, which we often look at as like video and audio. I'm yeah. like, cuz make sure you do that because the engagement factor. It's so natural and and, oh, and it's so big. And he literally hit me back after his shit went viral the other day and was like, Cuddy, you right. I was about to drop it as an IGTV, but my numbers is going crazy off the crazy. swipes. And, and, and literally that conversation came from me looking into your text message talk show because I knew I was about to have you on here. 
That's killer, bro. That's, That's killer. killer. <laughs> and, and the thing is, I think what well, IGTV is that when you have to press continue to watch or something yep, like that. Yep, exactly. It's so many videos. I'd be like. I'm out. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, like, exactly. I'm, out. <laughs> I'm like, and like I said, I didn't even know if I knew what I was talking about at the time. Right. Like, it wasn't really no science behind me saying that to him. It was literally me being engaged in your content and telling him, this is how you need to release this content. Because I knew the freestyle was off the charts. Once I yeah, saw it, crazy. I'm like, anybody that hears and sees this freestyle, it's undeniable. Now, how do we get the most engagement? And that shit just came out of my mouth because I was, you know, tuned into your show. So I, I had to, I had to let you know that, man. You looped in the yeah, culture, even ways you may not necessarily know how. Hey, you know, I love <laughs> to hear, it, bro. That's what it's all about, man. Putting our our uh, our brothers on, man. We so we talk about the group ep- economics so much. Yeah. Uh, in the black community, you know what I mean? Because other cultures they do that. You know what I mean? So. For you to, you know, see that and give him that free game, that yeah. was that's big time. So we just got to keep building like that, man, looking out for our brothers, bro, because I think we got to do a way better job than that, putting our brothers on, putting our brothers in position to win. Absolutely, 100%. Oh, my goodness. This last clip, this last episode, this last huge moment that we had here in the year of 2020 on the Wake Up and Win podcast was by way of my cousin Simba. For those of you that don't know, Simba is an artist. He's in rap. He's a rapper. We're, we're born and raised in the Bay Area, but he's currently based in Los Angeles. And he had the, not one of the, but the best radio freestyle of 2020 by a long shot. So much so that even LeBron James took notice. So in this story here, I wanted to close out with something fun, something inspirational, as Simba talked about this freestyle that he put out that went absolutely viral and how LeBron James changed his life with the click of a button. Y'all sit back and enjoy, y'all. And just so the listeners can get a feel for how viral, how widespread this particular freestyle went. Answer me this. Yes. Before you released the freestyle, how many Instagram followers did you have? I had um, 48,000 Instagram followers November 16th. November 16th. Today is December 1st when we're recording this podcast. We'll release it later in the week. Today, how many Instagram followers do you have? (laughs) 121,000. Thank you, King James. Thank you, LeBron. Thank you, LeBron. So, So let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Tell me about the LeBron stamp. And first off, I want you to talk about when you first realized that LeBron reposted your freestyle, because I'll tell you about my backstory, how I actually realized LeBron reposted your freestyle. But I want to hear from you. What was your reaction and how did you even find out that LeBron reposted it? Because I know it was just on the story. I don't know if he tagged you in it, but yeah, it's the LeBron effect. Talk to me about that moment in particular. So uh, I put the freestyle up, boom, I already knew. The freestyle was going to do great on Instagram. I drop a lot of freestyles, but um, this was on a bigger platform. So I've always been telling people for years, if I could just get the right platform, right? I've always been dope at music, um, but if I could just get the right platform, I'm going to shine. I've been saying this shit for years. I'm going to shine. 
And it's crazy how time it happened because I'm glad it happened right now because who I was mentally in that time when I was saying that wouldn't have been ready for what's going on right now. Absolutely. You know, so I'm, I'm glad how time played itself out. But so I put the freestyle up, bro. And it's going, it's just going ham. It's just going ham. Everybody's reposting it and tagging me. And then all of a sudden I put the phone down because sometimes when I look at the phone too much, my eyes get blurry. Right. Right. So I put the phone down and I start playing with my son. So I got a basketball court in the little, in my house and me and my son playing basketball and my boy Fee called me. So he called me. So I pick up the phone. No, I missed the first call. I'm like, oh, I'll call him right back. He calls again. I'm like, okay, it must, it must be something. Right. I'm like, bro, I'm going to call right back. I'm playing with Aiden. He said, nigga, no, the f*** you not. LeBron <laughs> just posted your shit. <laughs> I said, what? He yeah. said, LeBron just posted the freestyle, right? Yeah. I said, hold on. I went to, I went to Instagram. I said, oh! <laughs> I, hit the, I hit the KT, buddy. <laughs> I hit the KT. Anything's possible. <laughs> I hit the KG, Cuddy. Right, 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 I right. I hit the KG, Cuddy. Yeah. And it was, it was crazy because uh, not only is Bron one of my favorite players ever, bro. You know, I got him and Kobe. They like 1A, 1B for me. Right. Uh, but he's also one of my he's also one of my favorite people as far Absolutely. as how he's involved in, in the culture, how he's involved in our community. He speaks up on every incident that happens with us in the urban community. Um, the television shows he put together, the schools he's put together, the scholarships he's put together, just the different things he, he does as someone of that caliber who most people get to that level and they don't come back and look out. Or right. they don't stay in tune with the culture, stay in tune with what's going on. So the fact that he's the biggest sports player to me ever. Yeah. Right. And I say ever. Damn near mostly influential that sure. Jordan Kobe S. Absolutely. Went through a social media era. Jordan Kobe didn't go through the social media era like Bron. So he's one of the biggest ever. So for him to be in tune with the kid with 48,000 followers that right. most rappers won't even repost. You know, a lot of rappers won't even show love and support like that because it's like they think they're going to give somebody a platform that threatens their position. Absolutely. But I'm coming to help. I'm trying to get some money with you. So for somebody of that stature to do that for me, bro, it just shows the type of person he is, bro. And I'm, Absolutely. I'm ever grateful to LeBron, bro. Anybody yeah. say something bad about LeBron, I'm going to beat their ass. <laughs> It's crazy because you sent me the freestyle <laughs> a couple of days before it got released. And LeBron released it the night that it was, I mean, LeBron posted it the night that it was released. And so yeah. a couple of days before you sent me the freestyle. Yeah. You sent me the freestyle like via Google drive. And so we obviously talked about it. We dissected it on the last episode. I had the rail right on and I was telling him about the engagement conversation you and I were having when it came to the swipes and how we were talking about this text message talk show. We're just yeah. figuring out everything we can to see how this thing could go as big as it can. Obviously LeBron isn't a thought at that time, 48 hours before you released it and you and yeah. I are having this conversation, but we know this freestyle yep. is golden. So we got to make sure this one circulates. Because and you the person that told me. Go ahead. You the person that told me to, to do the swipe. Because yeah. I was actually 
Just go upload it to the, the full thing on IGTV and you got to do the swipe. Do the swipes, do the swipes. And like I said, a lot of that had to do with me engaging in Darrell Wright's content. And I just was mind blown at how dope his content was in particular. But you, you fast forward. Yeah. Monday night is here. And obviously we're all reposting your shit. Everybody's reposting the freestyle. You're seeing it go viral. And I actually got hit up from my brother, Jason Verrett, starting cornerback for the 49ers. Shout out my boy, Fever. Yeah. Um, and he sent me like a, Jason. absolutely Bay Area to the fullest. He sends me the story. So when I look at it in my inbox, I'm thinking he's just sending me the freestyle that you posted because I didn't see like I didn't open the story fully to yeah. be able to see LeBron's commentary and obviously his his name at the top of that particular post. So he sends me the story and I look at it. And he's just like, Jason, like, man, this Ross. So I'm starting to respond back to Jason. I'm like, yeah, Cuddy went crazy. Whoop, do a whoop. I'm just responding back to Jason to talk about the freestyle. But before I press in, for some reason, I just opened the story fully. And I saw it was LeBron posting. And I said, no way, bro. (laughs) No, no way. Like, that's (laughs) crazy. So now I'm tripping because I'm thinking he just, you know, showing love, telling me the freestyle is dope. I have no idea that he's sending me the post that LeBron posted, obviously reposting you. So now I'm mind blown. I'm like, yeah, it's game over. It's over. It's out the park. And so to hear you go from 45,000 followers to 120 plus thousand followers, that's absolutely insane, and it really shows yeah. the power of the internet. It shows the power of influence, and obviously LeBron's influence in particular. You one, you one click away from a life change, bro. To yep. like everybody out there, um, everybody out there who may be insecure about their content. You know what I mean? Insecure about starting something and trying to get a show role in a podcast, music, movies, whatever it may be. You just gotta start. You know what I mean? You got to start because just starting and doing it, you never know who can see it. And before you know it, I've been rapping, bro, all my, damn near all my life, all my fucking life. But my defining moment came from the biggest sports player ever. Who ever would have thought if someone told me in the beginning of the year, you know, uh, LeBron James is going to post you this year, bro, and your life going to change. Absolutely. It's, it, it sounds fucking crazy. Yeah, for you know? sure. But it's just with pure skill, skill, pure talent, pure hope. I'm not out here dying my hair. I'm not jumping off no bridge to get followers. I'm not showing my dick on camera. Right. I'm not, you know, showing money. I'm not showing guns. I'm standing on pure ability to rap. And for the greatest sports player ever to see that, Right. To see right. that and post it, bro. You can't even you can't even guess that you can't even imagine it. But the Internet can. So it just yeah. shows how we have to just put your dreams out there, bro. Put what you believe in out there. Man, I truly, truly hope y'all enjoyed this episode. I hope y'all enjoyed everything about 
the ups and the downs, the ebbs and the flows, the good and the bad, the fun and the sad and the everything in between that we had to deal with as a podcast community here in the year of 2020. I'm very grateful to be able to get through another calendar year as the host of this podcast. I'm very grateful for everybody that's been a part of the journey of this podcast as we've been doing so much work for such a long time. And like I said, I just feel like this year we really got to find our identity as a podcast. And in feeling that way, I am super hopeful. I'm super encouraged. I'm super inspired. And I'm super ready to dive into 2021 and see some more of the great coverage and the great moments that we'll have by way of this podcast. And just continue to grow with y'all as we all continue to do the great work that we do as humans, as people, as journalists, as listeners, as consumers, as subscribers, as hosts, whatever it is we got going on that allows us to return right back here to this podcast whenever things see fit. Um, So again, thank you all for riding this wave, the wake up and win wave during the year 2020. I hope y'all enjoyed this recap episode that we did just to hit on some of the big moments that we had in the year 2020. And I most definitely hope that y'all are willing to ride this next wave in the year 2021. Y'all have a happy new year and we are going to leave y'all the only way that we know how, and that is to stay woke and go win.